G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. As always, a big thank you to the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC for their continued support of this program. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. In fact, the CFRC podcasting section now does all that for us, which is fantastic. Today, I would like to introduce you to Luisa Vajeri, who is doing a Master of Science in Epidemiology under the supervision of Dr. Susan Bartels and Dr. Heather Stewart. Welcome to Grad Chat again, Luisa. Thank you. Now, I say again, as Louisa last year came on the show, I think it was last year, to talk about Queen's Flip the Script program as Louisa and her grad colleagues were running it. Will that sh- that program be offered again this year? Yeah, so we are running two new sessions this winter term. The first is in February. Excellent. And the second is in March. There are two weekends, February 2nd and 3rd, and then March 9th and 10th from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And so can people sign up for those now? Is that open right now? It's not open yet, but it will be open this week. If you search Flip the Script Queens on Facebook, you should be able to find us and then register from there. And it's a fantastic program. So if you haven't done it already, I strongly recommend it uh, for our, particularly our female students to learn a few things that can help you while you're at school and beyond, to be perfectly honest. So thanks again for doing that. We might be able to get back to that a little bit later in the show. Now, you're a social epidemiologist. In training. In training. Yes, yes well, that's true. Not you're a master. You're not quite there, but you're a social epidemiologist. So can you tell us what does it actually mean? Because it's one of those words that gets people a little confused at times. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll first start off with um, epidemiology, which is a study that is central to public and population health. So epidemiologists are uh, researchers that understand how to conduct and appraise population-based research, looking at the relationship between various exposures, which are various factors that you can be exposed to at one point of your life or another that influence health-related outcomes. Right. So that's a very broad definition of the field, and there are different branches. So a social epidemiologist looks at social causes and factors of health and health-related states. So instead of looking at a particular biological pathway or exposure to known carcinogens, for instance, a social epidemiologist will look at access to education, various policies that exist, trends throughout time, um, even a gender-based analysis. And health-related states here are conceptualized quite broadly because health has biological, social, emotional, and political factors, which all can be studied within the framework of social epidemiology. See, I'm glad I asked the question. Because <laughs> usually people th- think about epidemiologists as looking at epidemics and stuff and where's the, where was the first, the primary point of contact, et cetera, et cetera, but still looking at populations and things. So this is fascinating. And actually, it's a really good lead in to your research topic, which is, it's a great one, really love this one. Even peacekeepers expect something in return an exploratory cross-sectional analysis of sexual interactions between UN peacekeepers and the Haitian citizens. It's a long one, but a fascinating one. 
can you give us a bit of an overview of what all that means? And of course, we'll get in more depth um, as we go along, but can you just give us a general overview of what you're trying to do there? Keeping in mind, everyone, that Louisa is only a master's student, so she can't go too much into it. But let's see how you go with this first part. Sure, it'll definitely um, be a challenge to succinctly summarize everything. <laughs> this is the this is the point of the whole show. <laughs> yeah. So in between 2004 and 2017, there was a peacekeeping operation that was sanctioned in Haiti by the United Nations Security Council, and the name was the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And the goal of this mission was to neutralize the armed gangs that were politically motivated in Haiti, causing an intrastate conflict. And so this mission was sanctioned, the gangs were neutralized, and during the time that the peacekeeping mission was operational, you had these anecdotal reports within the media and within the UN about civilian peacekeeper sexual interactions. And they were framed primarily as being sexual abuse and exploitation, and so they were able to enter the media as very notorious and scandalous in contrast to the image of peacekeeping in the UN that the international community predominantly has. And so a lot of scholars within the fields of law and political studies have entered this domain of civilian peacekeeper sexual interactions to understand what are the motivators, but also what are the consequences. And when you're looking at it through a gender-based lens, it would be male peacekeeper, female civilian. However, this also happens um, between males, so it could be a male Haitian and a UN peacekeeper. But my research is predominantly focused on the male peacekeeper and the female civilian because it also implicates children born out of these interactions, right, right. which are known as peace babies, children that are born to local mothers and fathered by UN peacekeepers. And so this sort of topic is new to epidemiology because it's been within the field of political science and law, as I've said. But when you're looking at a population of people that have been exposed, let's use epidemiology terms, to this peacekeeping mission, and predominantly women that have participated in, in sexual contact with peacekeepers, they have specific life course needs. Some of them are acute, some of them are more immediate, and then when you bring children into the picture, um, you really can see that life course perspective. So the purpose of my thesis, it has three subcomponents. The first is to understand the relationship between various geographic locations in Haiti, which is the exposure depending on where you live in Haiti. Right and how that affects whether you are likely or not to comment about sexual abuse and exploitation by a peacekeeper. The second is to understand the relationship between people who comment about UN wrongdoings, including sexual abuse and exploitation, and how that affects perceptions of UN legitimacies and desire to gauge, engage with the UN moving forward. Right. And the third is to understand the lived experiences of women raising peace babies that is children fathered by UN peacekeepers in Haiti. So in a nutshell, that's what I'm uh, attempting to do. And the bulk of my analysis is largely complete, although hasn't been refined uh, with a fine tooth comb. So I'm excited that that part is over and I can start hopefully writing soon. There are three big areas, though, that you're looking at. 
huge areas. Yeah, well, I, I was lucky to have a data set that enabled me to have qualitative and quantitative data. Right. So I was just trying to utilize that in the most robust and fruitful way possible <laughs> because the data is there and I just wanted to think of research questions that could tell a coherent story right, about right. this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So you, you said there's these big data sets that you're able to get your hands on. How did you get your hands on them? And yeah. how did you actually sift through the information that was there? So when I became part of this project, my supervisor, Dr. Susan Bartels, had already collected all of the data. Handy. <laughs> I know. So that was a huge component of being able to come up with these three different research questions because I right. had the data there. And so there are 2,500 participants who participated in this cross-sectional survey. Which is good. Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a large enough data set to have enough statistical power to look at these different relationships. And there's also qualitative data as well. So once I got familiar with what was in this data set, then I could think of ways to to think about it within epidemiology and maybe a little bit beyond that too. <laughs> so you mentioned in your research paper that you've given to me something called SenseMaker. Yeah. And and, and its role in, in your collection analysis of the data. So what is SenseMaker and how is it used in the field of epidemiology? So SenseMaker is a form of technology developed by a company called um, Cognitive Edge, and it's a mixed methods data collection tool. And what makes it really special is that it allows for the rapid collection of data. So what ends up happening is you develop a survey and you put it on an iPad or a cell phone. Right. And the participant then uses that medium to answer the questions and you have all of the data points being uploaded within the within the iPad system right. and then gets transferred to the cloud. So you have immediate access to the data that you are collecting on the field. And it allows for a very unique collection of quantitative and qualitative data. So with a SenseMaker survey, a person who agrees to participate in this study will be asked sort of prompting questions. So in this case, the prompting question is, tell us a story about a woman or a girl in your community in relation to the United Nations peacekeeping mission. Okay. And the prompting question is supposed to be broad to elicit any type of story that this participant may want to share. Okay. So out of the out of 2,500 narratives, um, about 584 concerned sex with peacekeepers. Okay. After a person tells that their story, that story is then recorded and it can be transcribed for qualitative analysis and coding and theming. And with that story in mind, the person is then taken through a series of sort of what I like to call spatial questions where they're asked to interpret their story. So instead of the researcher then looking at that story and trying to interpret the meaning and the perception of this person, the, the same participant is interpreting their story. Okay, so you're getting the real what they thought. So it's, there's no misrepresentation. Well, as little as, little as, possible. as little as possible. There's always going to be a little bit of that mm. error with any any type of study that you design. But SenseMaker is unique in that it allows participants to self-code their lived experiences and the narrative right. that they choose to share. Right. And those perceptions are then quantitatively coded to allow for quantitative analysis in addition to the qualitative analysis. 
So it's interesting you were mentioning that you're not necessarily going to the women who had those interactions. It's people within their community who knew of these interactions. Or were you able, with the data collection, were they able to get some of the women who had in, had, had, had interactions with the UN peacekeepers? It's definitely both. So we right. have members of the general community who have heard about this phenomenon, largely within the community, who know somebody in their family or in their friend group, or who have themselves experienced the phenomenon of having sex with a peacekeeper. So it's there's a mix of, of all. There is. Okay. Because that would, to me, that would be fascinating to see the difference between the actual, the perceived from someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And so these communities, though, I mean, Haiti is not a big place. How, how big are these communities? And you, did you go to several, or did they go to several communities, or did they just stick with the one? So when the study was being administered, my supervisor, Dr. Susan Bartels and her team, they purposely selected UN bases of a particular size and mix of um, contingents from different troop and police contributing countries, because not all UN bases have an active humanitarian response role. Some of them are administrative. So they purposely selected bases that had this type of role, and then cities and towns that were within 30 kilometers of a radius to these bases were were sites where the survey was administered. Okay. So we have eight locations right. across a variety of different bases, but they all had to be within 30 kilometers of, of the purposely selected UN bases. Apart from all the ethics and things you had to go through, but how did you get them to participate? Yeah, so because the data was collected when I came aboard, I had no role in collecting the data, but because this research um, transcends sort of boundaries of different countries and cultures, histories and histories of colonialization and just the list goes on. Yes. We worked with three really great community partners in Haiti. One of them was key in providing Haitian research assistants that were trained and then went in their respective communities to recruit people that wanted to participate in the study. So nobody from Queens actually went into the communities and was recruiting. And if you think about sort of subjectivities within research and how you present to the outworld yes. world as a privileged researcher coming from Canada, it wouldn't be ethically possible, nor would you get rich data right. from and, that, and that's the important thing. Exactly. Get, yeah. Okay, so that, that all makes total sense and it's a pity you couldn't, but understand the reasons why. Time constraints and it was before your time. <laughs> so, so what did you? What are what are the primary concerns among women raising peace babies in Haiti? And and I guess do that experience affect the UN's future in Haiti in terms of perceptions of legitimacy? So, and what do we mean by legitimacy? Too, I guess too. Yeah, that's a great question. So, having looked at the data and in particular the qualitative interviews. I think education is a theme that commonly kept up in the, uh, propped up in the interviews. Right. And it's this idea that education was perceived to be central to the life course of these children. 
and sort of right. pulling them out of the stigma that has become their realities within their communities, whether they be urban or rural, that, that element of stigma of having conceived a child with a UN peacekeeper right. that then left. And now you are a single mother raising a child that is probably mixed race within this community. So education was was perceived to be as a factor that would pull these these women and these children out of stigma and also just adverse social determinants of health including income education poverty etc and it was education for the children themselves right. to be able to go to school complete high school obtain some sort of training or post secondary education but also education for the mothers themselves for these women because the the type of employment opportunity that is available to them is quite precarious so right. to have some sort of vocational training to then get a more stable job so they was can support the kid central. yes yeah so mm-hmm. education definitely that's a big one and then you talked about the legitimacy of the un because it's my understanding if i've read things correctly the un says they have no control over what happens on these in these sort of missions and they don't take any responsibilities for what happened. Is that correct, or am I misreading? I think and this, this is where it comes down to the legi- legitimacy. Should the UN be there if they're not going to be able to control their people? <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a central question that's even debated in the literature. So what we know on the side of the UN as an organization with its own sort of agenda, and I don't mean that maliciously, no, but it is yes. an international peacekeeping, human rights promoting organization. So what we know based off of the resolutions and policy frameworks that they have is that they maintain zero tolerance policy on the sexual exploitation and abuse of beneficiaries of assistance. That is what they call people in countries or communities where a peacekeeping operation exists. Okay, so there is zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. And that is largely extended to any sort of sexual interaction because the way the UN frames the issue is that a UN peacekeeper has disproportionate power and control Mm -hmm. in comparison to these beneficiaries of assistance. Right, right. So because of that, throughout a peacekeeper's term of duty, which are six months and they get rotated so they can stay longer or they can go back to their country, when your official course of duty, sex with a local would automatically be framed as sexual abuse and exploitation. Right. There are sort of caveats within the zero tolerance framework that are sort of ironic to read because it also states that if marriage occurs during the term of duty, then that's okay. Oh, okay. And right. also it states that... So more or less fraternization is okay as long as you get married after. Yeah, which is sort of an ironic addition to the zero tolerance policy. And in addition to that, it states that if a beneficiary of assistance is over the age of 18 and has the capacity to consent, although they never mention consent explicitly in this policy, right. then it is up to the case manager of the peacekeeping operation or the head of the peacekeeping oh, operation on a case-by-case basis. So largely there is a, a zero-tolerance fra- policy for sex with 
with beneficiaries of assistance, including sexual abuse and exploitation, but there are some gray zones in this policy mm -hmm. document. And in addition to the zero tolerance policy, there is a resolution, so resolution 62214, which is a comprehensive strategy for victims of sexual abuse and exploitation. But it clearly states that the UN is a liaison in terms of legal processes to uh, hold the peacekeeper criminally accountable if applicable or to establish paternity between the host country in this case Haiti and then the trooper police contributing country so they assume no immediate responsibility for the actions of the peacekeeper because the troop contributing country is responsible for any sort of prosecution so this creates a very interesting legal gray zone for children right. that are fathered by peacekeepers because few paternity claims are actually tracked back to the country of origin for a variety of different reasons. So the the local police or whatever would get involved if there was physical abuse and stuff. So it gets it's, even like you said, it's even, yeah, yeah, you said, it's, it's, really it's murky. even more complicated right. because in Haiti there wasn't a strong police force. That was one of the main oh, reasons right, why yes. the peacekeeping mission there. had to come in to bring police officers from a variety of different countries to establish the rule of law in the state. Right. And so in a country similar to Haiti, where the state infrastructure isn't there to report crimes, it becomes even more difficult. Right, okay. And the UN, as you said, doesn't take any responsibility for any children that are born from these interactions, which is interesting when there was the zero policy zero tolerance to start with and education of course is a big thing you think the UN would at least help with education yeah and that's... whether it whether it is as part of their UN portfolio is to build some schools and, and infrastructure so there is some decent schooling available yeah I think that that's... It's, it's a roundabout way that's definitely within the literature in terms of where to go next is what is mm -hmm. the next best evidence-based method of advocacy for these children and these women. But the UN may work through education sort of indirectly th with these peace babies. Right, we have right. the, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which includes the right to education. And we you have like UNICEF and other um, organizations right, that right. may be part of the UN indirectly or, you know, the UN population fund or other organs of the UN that end up doing that type of work but there isn't a policy framework that states children conceived by UN peacekeepers are entitled to x y and z for the sole um, fact and reality that they were conceived by UN right. staff or peacekeepers or contractors. You said looking at the paternity side of it there's this it was very difficult to prove whatever has there been any cases where the the woman with the child has been able to prove that man there is the father who was a UN peacekeeper and if so what happened then was did the UN take a different sort of response role there or or was it still no. So even within the data set that I'm working with, there are a number of women who 
have gone through the process of obtaining a DNA test to establish paternity. And a DNA test is within the framework that the UN has when dealing with children fathered by UN peacekeepers. So if the woman can identify the country that the peacekeeper was from, if she knows Mm -hmm. that information, if she knows his title, whether he was part of military or police or what rank he was in, etc., then that helps to identify the peacekeeper, obviously, in addition to other identifying information, such as his name, his date of birth, etc. So if that is the case, then the troop contributing country so the country where the peacekeeper is from will send a representative to facilitate a dna test so they will gather dna from all of this important stakeholders involved the father the child sometimes the mother and establish with scientific certainty whether he is the father of this child or not but even after a positive test comes forward may not be enough to actually get the child support payments that the woman is looking for and maybe that's not how she conceptualizes justice maybe Mm -hmm. justice for her isn't that she needs to have this man recognize that this is his child. Maybe justice is obtaining education. Education. Right. And right. and I think that is what's interesting about my research is also trying to change the way we think about legal justice, right. particularly in cases of sexual abuse and exploitation. And I just want to say as as an aside, that in many cases, if you don't know the name of the peacekeeper, if you don't know what country he's from, if you're unsure of what role he played, it's even harder for you to bring forward a case to establish DNA. Right, right. Tricky stuff. So does the category of sexual abuse and exploitation accurately capture the sexual interactions occurring between male UN peacekeepers and female Haitians during this period of time that you had talked about? And, you know, what evidence is there to support or counter the framing that all civilian peacekeepers' sexual interactions are inherently exploitative and abusive? So when I started this project, I think I entered it with a very simplistic framing (laughs) as, you know, the peacekeeper is sort of like predatory and embedded within the sphere of military masculinity. And these women are not as active agents in in this process of negotiation in this phenomenon but when you have access to qualitative data in particular and you get to delve into the meaning and perceptions of these women i was very surprised to find that sometimes and this is not for all women but some women don't conceptualize their sexual encounters as abuse or exploitation okay Sometimes they are conceptualized as relationships, monogamous relationships with these peacekeepers. And amongst all of them, there's a common thread of some sort of an exchange in this relationship. So the peacekeeper may exchange food, money, clothing, shelter, security, any other resources that a woman in Haiti or any person in Haiti would value. And the exchange for that becomes the sexual interaction. And that is this particular phenomenon called transactional sex. And so sexual abuse and exploitation, absolutely, it's part of the picture. But whether it tells the entire picture of all of the sexual interactions, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. about right 
right now. I would argue to say no. There is evidence that even within this this domain of transactional sex, some women have the capacity to negotiate these relationships in different ways. Whether they have equal power is debatable, but some evidence of autonomy and decision-making and consent is present among women who have the capacity to consent in Haiti. And I think that it's important for that not to be overlooked right, yeah. and not to look at this as the predatory peacekeeper. Right. And you know, the local helpless women, so to speak. And I think viewing these women and these children as active agents in this process further justifies the advocacy for education to give them all of the tools and skills necessary to live a productive life, however that is understood in Haiti. I think you've given us a really good overview of what you're doing and it's and it, to be honest it's a fascinating topic and I'm, it's one of those topics and I think well how did you get to that but then I was looking at some of your extracurricular work that you do and as I say each time our grad students don't just worry about their own research they do other things too and keep themselves very busy but I noticed that uh, just this past year you were a research assistantship had a research assistantship monitoring and evaluating Um, what was it, Uh, the UN Population Fund, this is in Beirut, Lebanon, you collaborated with the UN Population Fund to strengthen the monitoring and evaluation capacity of the six NGOs delivering gender-based violence programming to Syrian refugees. Is this something that added on from you doing flip the script? Is it is this the way you're wanting to go? Because it seems you're doing a lot of stuff about human rights and equity and all those sorts of things. So what made you take on that research assistantship? So I'm very lucky to work with the team of supervisors and even within the Department of Public Health Sciences here at Queen's. There are a lot of ongoing projects that relate to this area of human rights and health equity. And my supervisor had an active grant in Lebanon, and I had the opportunity to go to to Lebanon, to Beirut with her and, and the team, right. and to participate in a workshop that was using SenseMaker as a monitoring and evaluation tool right. to understand how programming in Lebanon for displaced Syrian refugees can be improved in the area of sexual abuse and exploitation and domestic abuse and women's empowerment. So I I think it's interesting because you enter a field yes. knowing little about it. I, I didn't even know what a peacekeeping operation was really when I started this project. Right. But it's opened the door to take on other similar projects. Right. And so did I think I was going to be working in this particular area? No, but it's been... <laughs> It's been great. Sounds I've, like it's been fascinating for I've you. learned so much and I've traveled to so many different places and had conversations with people I would have otherwise never met. And it's all connected with this theme of sexual violence and how that relates to health and right. the life course perspective. But, but nonetheless, I have learned about international law human rights. I've learned to apply the methods of epidemiology in a more unique way. Yep. So it's it's just been a constant learning process and I'm grateful for it all. Is this something you'd like to continue doing? I mean, is this, is this how you see yourself down the track, maybe working with an NGO or some sort of international organization Definitely. in this sort of area? Yeah, I think research is predominantly how I hope to understand 
and mobilize change is, right. is through research. I think developing a very strong evidence base in understanding the root causes of issues, especially complex issues like sexual violence and mm-hmm. how they relate to health. I think epidemiology has given me a a research toolkit in a way to look at these problems that's very systematic. Right. And then from that evidence base, moving that into actionable policy differences or education is where I hope my education will take me next because research is wonderful, but it is not the holy grail, the solution to everything. And communicating that research and bringing it forward um, is sort of where I see myself. Well, and this is why this is important is you, you hit the nail on the head there talking about you've got to be able to communicate what you're doing and make it useful out there. So if you can do that, because obviously you're passionate about some of this stuff, that would be awesome. <laughs> so keep going on that. You know what? Um, oh, we're almost at the end here, but I'm going to ask you one more question. You've also, as one of your other extracurriculars, you worked for the HIV AIDS Regional Services here in Kingston. And, uh, oh, that was also 2017, 2018. That was a busy year mm-hmm. for you. What were you What were you doing there? What was, what was your purpose in, in volunteering at that place? So I used to volunteer at the drop-in space at HARS, which is, like you said, the HIV AIDS Regional Center here in Kingston. And I would administer, like, harm reduction to sp- supplies to anyone who was interested. Right. And dispose of used used needles, for instance, or their uh, supplies that were used in the process of intravenous drug use. Right. But mostly it was about interacting with a, a subgroup of people here in Kingston that, to be honest, I would walk the longer way, right, right. right. To, to avoid, to avoid in, in a way. And it was for me to step outside of my comfort zone to see the sort of shared humanity amongst intravenous drug users, people who might experience a variety of different mental health um, concerns and who aren't that different, to be honest, mm-hmm. from you and I. And I consider myself very privileged and lucky not to have experienced something in my life right. That would have increased dependency on substance use. So it was a very simple role, actually, in the drop-in space. Chat with people, serve them coffee, serve food, and then administer the harm reduction supplies. But I think... It's the observation of seeing what's, how they're living and etc., Exactly. We can do a lot just by looking and watching. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of changed something in me to to not be so afraid of right. populations of people that are just different from you. They're just different. That's just what it comes down to. Right. And then what can we do to, to ease, if, if they're in danger or whatever, what can we do to help? Exactly. Yeah. And I think as an epidemiologist working sometimes with infectious disease, yes. you don't get to see the person behind that because they're working with data sets. Right. So for me, I wanted to see the person in the humanity behind the data set. Which would have been nice when you went across to Lebanon and things too because you're actually there, even though you're still collecting data. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're clearly like looking at and helping those people need support if you look at your research and the volunteer work that you've done. You know, we're going to have to call it quits. Sorry about that because this has been fascinating. So, Louisa, thanks very much for coming on the show today. I wish you best of luck with the rest of your research. This is your final year for your research. Okay, so lots to do. 
that data sets there, which is great. You've got it all sorted. And now it's just the writing part, isn't it? That's the nasty part, I reckon. <laughs> but anyway, you'll be just fine. So thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show as a podcast. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.